Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, you can grab a Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you will find that on page 980. And as you're finding your place, you know, everybody is different. Some people like chocolate, uh, some people like vanilla, some people like the summertime, some people prefer the winter, some people drive a straight line, and other people prefer to take the scenic route. Everyone is different, and that's okay, because God created us to be different. Is that the problem is that sin takes the differences that God designed and created to be good, and it turns them inside out. So that now what I like is what you should like. And what I think about something is what everybody should think about something. And if you disagree with me, then we're going to have problems because I am objectively right and you are wrong. And unfortunately, uh, Christians are not immune from this mindset. And if we're not careful, churches can become hotbeds of conflict as, as members try to absolutize their opinions. And it would seem that, that there are innumerable opportunities for our personal preferences to become opportunities for conflict. I don't like this carpet color. I don't like the way they come to church dressed. Why do we have to sing all of these old songs? Why do we have to sing all these new songs? Who is sitting in my pew? Who are these people who want my Sunday school class? All right, we could go on and on. Truly, we could go on and on. You see, when we absolutize our personal preferences, we become self-focused. And when we are self-focused, we become argumentative and territorial. And over time, churches can become divided as everyone fights to get exactly what they want the way that they want it. And in some instances, they may even split over these types of conflicts. But either way, when churches become preoccupied over controversy, they become completely ineffective at accomplishing the mission that the Lord has actually called us to. And so what can we do to avoid this? Well, we're going to find out this morning, as Paul reminds the Philippians of the importance of cultivating unity within the church. And so we are in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
So last week we moved into the main body of the letter, and we saw Paul expressing a desire for the Philippians to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And we saw that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are called to, to use the gospel and its implications as our guide in all things. That is the law that we follow as citizens of the kingdom. And the rest of this letter is now explaining what that looks like. And so at the end of chapter 1, Paul called the Philippians to stand firm in, in one mind, in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not being afraid of anything in the midst of persecution. And we saw that, that suffering for the Lord is a gift that God gives to his people. We know that, that he is at work in and through us as we remain faithful under pressure. While having that perspective is, is helpful for understanding our situation, it doesn't necessarily make enduring difficulty any easier. Right? Suffering is not fun. It hurts. This is a, a weighty reality for us to come to grips with. But fortunately, as we move into chapter 2, Paul shows us, we see that the Lord meets us in this weighty reality with support that is equal to the task. And so Paul uh, tells us that God does not abandon his people when they suffer. He provides for them. And he refers here to encouragement in Christ comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy. Now, it's, it's difficult to nail down specifically what some of these words are referring to. There's obviously a lot of overlap between them. But the point is that in times of suffering, believers receive comfort and support, both from the Lord himself, we see encouragement in Christ and participation in the Spirit, and also from one another. He refers to that comfort from love and affection and sympathy. And so we already know that the Lord provides for our physical needs. Uh, but here the emphasis is on the Lord meeting our emotional and spiritual needs. And, and he, he does that, again, through himself and through the other members of our church. And so the consistent testimony of believers throughout the ages, especially in times of persecution has been that in their darkest moments, the Lord has drawn them closer to himself than ever before. And, and on the other hand, I don't know how many times I've talked to people who were going through grief or, or some other difficult type of circumstance, and they have said to me, I do not know what I would do if it wasn't for my church family and the support that they've been giving me. And the Lord provides for us, and he, he provides an assurance and a confidence that enables us to hold on in times of difficulty. The Lord personally ministers to his people, and he uses the members of the church to minister to one another as well. And you probably notice that these first two verses are structured as an if-then clause. Right? If this, then that. And Paul writes in such a way that the if part is assumed to be true, which then means that the then part is assumed to be appropriate. Right, Paul isn't unsure over whether or not the things that he's writing about here are real. Right, he knows better than anybody that they are. Right, and because they are real, he makes a personal appeal in verse 2. He says, complete my joy. 
And so thinking back to chapter 1, we've already seen that Paul remembers and prays for the Philippians with joy. And we see that, that he is rejoicing over the fact that the gospel is continuing to advance through his difficult circumstances. And now he essentially says there's one thing left. You guys have the opportunity to complete my joy. And the way the Philippians can do this is by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. And what Paul's desire boils down to is a, a unity in the church that is brought about through love, a sacrificial commitment to the well-being of others, and a common mindset or attitude. The word mind here is referring to a particular way of thinking. And I think it's important for us to understand that because one of the obstacles to unity oftentimes is simply that we don't understand what unity is. See, a lot of times people confuse unity with uniformity. And those two are not the same thing. Sometimes you get the idea that for unity to exist, we all have to be exactly the same. We have to agree on everything. Right, but that's not unity. That's uniformity. Right, so if you think about a football team, when you get all the players lined up and in uniform, they've got their helmet and their pads and their jersey, if you back up far enough, you can't tell one of them apart from another because they all are exactly the same. They are in uniform. But unity does not require uniformity. And just take the relationship between the states here in our country. All right, Texas is very different from New York, which is very different from Wyoming, which in turn is very different from Florida. All right, every state is unique. The people are different. The geography is different. Many of the local laws can even be different. And yet, all of the states are united, literally, around a common purpose that is bigger than any one state, which is the overall well-being of our country. Right? And in the same way, Christians don't have to be uniform. In fact, Paul makes it very clear in Romans chapter 14 that there's a whole host of issues that we can disagree over, and yet he still expects us to be united around the common purpose of the kingdom of God and of the gospel. And he tells us that love, again, a commitment to one another's well-being, that is willing to sacrifice for each other's benefit if necessary, and a common mindset, right? not what we think necessarily, but how we think is going to get us there. So achieving unity can be challenging, especially when stress levels are high, like during a time of persecution, such as what the Philippians appear to have been experiencing. But since, even in the worst situations, God meets his people's needs, as we've just seen in verse 1, we, we understand that unity is something that can and should be pursued, and churches have no excuse for being divided. So, how do we go about cultivating unity? What does this common love for each other and this common way of thinking look like in action. Well, Paul explains as we move into verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
And so as we move into verse 3, we see that cultivating unity in our church begins by rejecting the natural selfishness of our hearts. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. And so selfish ambition refers to a desire to get what is best for me. It is a me-first attitude where I want what I want the way I want it, regardless of whether or not that comes at the expense of others. You may remember that the last time we came across it, Paul used selfish ambition to describe the preachers who were ministering the gospel not out of a genuine love for the Lord, but out of an attempt to harm him, to hurt him in some way. Right, and conceit is similar to that, but it also carries the connotation of, of someone thinking that they are better than everybody else, more important than everybody else, and therefore they should get their way. So we're going to do things my way because I'm right, or because I've been here the longest, or because I give the most money, or, or whatever the case may be. And so instead of operating out of selfish ambition and conceit, as we look at the second half of verse 3, Paul commends an attitude of humility to the Philippians. Now, humility has been defined in a number of different ways by a number of different people, but the definition that has struck a chord with me is this. Humility is having an accurate view of ourselves in light of our sin and God's holiness. Humility is having an accurate view of ourselves in light of our sin and God's holiness. Right, it's, it's an accurate understanding of who we are in the grand scheme of things. And when we look at it from that angle, it becomes crystal clear that I am not the most important person in the world. And I'm not very important at all, really. And I am far from being better than anyone else. I am a sinner who has only been redeemed because of the grace of God through Jesus. I'm not important, and I have absolutely no grounds to expect anyone else to do my bidding. That's not who I am. And the more we see ourselves in the light of who God is, the more our egos will get cut down to size. And when our egos have been cut down to size, we are in position to be much more reasonable and to not demand that our personal preferences be indulged. But then Paul actually takes it a step further in the second half of verse 3. He says, In that state of humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So understand this morning, the call is not simply for us to be neutral, as if we're all equal. The call is actually for each of us to consider the other members of our church as more important than we are. Right? Not, not only should we not think that we are more important than everyone else, we are actually called to consider everyone else to be more important than we are. Now, you may think this is craziness, but it actually gets even better. And so as we look into verse 4, Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, now the word look in, in this context is a term of vigilance. And, and as I think about it, it reminded me of, of the, uh, the, the Animal Planet show Meerkat Manor. Did any of you ever watch Meerkat Manor? It is surprisingly adorable. 
but it's this, it's this documentary series about this pack of meerkats out in the African uh, savanna. And among the various roles within the pack are the guards who are constantly watching for any kind of threat. Right, a, a hawk or a snake or a hyena or any type of predator that's roaming around looking for uh, some good meerkat to eat. Right, and so they're constantly looking around. They, they pick up on the slightest movement so they can identify it and, and know what it is and possibly warn people if necessary. And Paul is essentially referring to that kind of vigilance here when it comes to us looking out for the interests of others. And so instead of thinking about ourselves and how we can get what we want the way that we want it, we should be constantly on the lookout for ways we can put our personal preferences aside in order to serve the rest of the church. So would this activity be helpful for you? Then let's do that. Would doing something in this way help you to follow Jesus better? Then let's do it that way. Does this song stir your heart to worship the Lord? Then I make a motion that we sing that song consistently. Would this particular approach better position our church to make disciples of Jesus? If so, then why on earth would we do anything else? Let's go. Let's go. It may sound familiar. It should sound familiar because we've seen it now twice in Philippians. But the posture of spiritual maturity is one that says, it's not about me. It's not about me. Now, here's the thing. Nobody in this room is going to stand up and object that unity is not really important, right? Nobody's going to say that. As we've said before, no, the problem comes in when it's me who has to sacrifice something in order to attain unity, right? Everybody agrees on unity in theory, but when the rubber meets the road and I actually have to do something to contribute to unity is when it becomes difficult. And so because of that, we are really, really good at convincing ourselves that our preferences aren't really preferences, they're principles. And they are principles that should be stood up on and fought for if necessary. And so starting in verse 5, Paul takes what I think of as a theological nuclear bomb, and he drops it to completely destroy any remaining resistance we may have to laying down our personal preferences towards working to unity. So we'll pick up one last time, beginning in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." And so if by chance you still believe 
that your personal preferences are too big for you to give up, that, that giving up your personal preferences is beneath you, then look at Jesus and what he has done for us. Paul says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus. And again, that word mind is referring to a particular way of thinking. Paul is calling us to think in the same way that Jesus thought, as he is the ultimate example of giving up personal preferences and even rights in order to serve others. In verses 6 and 7, Paul reminds us that Jesus, being in the form of God, which is to say, being God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so as you think about the Trinity, Jesus, being the second member of it, existed from eternity past, having all of the privileges and the experiences that go with that. All right, he is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He is, he is omnipresent. Right? He is everywhere. He rules over the world and exists in a state of total perfection that we cannot even begin to wrap our minds around. And yet Paul says that for Jesus, all of that and more was not something to be grasped, to be held onto for his own benefit, and he let go of it. And he came and lived in this world that we have ruined by our sin. And to be clear, Paul is not saying that Jesus stopped being God. He's saying that being God, Jesus took on humanity and chose to live as a servant of everyone and everything that should be rightfully serving him. This is what the Lord did. And in his humanity, the one who from eternity is omniscient became a baby who knew nothing and had to learn. The one who from eternity is self-sustaining felt the pangs of hunger and needed to eat. The one who from eternity is omnipotent felt tired and had to rest. Jesus, who had every right to remain in heaven and to continue experiencing the glories there, instead chose to give that up. He gave that up and he exposed himself to physical and emotional pain by entering into our world. Jesus denied what was in his best interest. And as we look back at verses 7 and 8, we see that's not all that Jesus did. He even gave himself over to death. And now every one of us is going to die someday. We don't get a choice in the matter. That's how life works in this broken world. But can you imagine the one who has eternally self-existed freely choosing to expose himself to death. In his humanity, Jesus did exactly that. And not just to death, but as Paul reminds us here, even death on a cross, which was the most shameful and disgraceful way to die in the ancient world. Most of the time, we, we put the emphasis on the physical pain of crucifixion. But just as important was the emotional and social humiliation of crucifixion. And so the contrast that Paul paints here could not be greater. Right? Jesus went from, from the, the heights of the greatest existence that we can't even begin to imagine, and he allowed himself to become a servant on the lowest level that we could possibly imagine. And he, and he did that for us. 
Right? Everything that, that we've mentioned is hard to believe, but the idea of the perfectly holy, sovereign ruler of the universe subjecting himself to the lowest of the low among his wicked creation, that's utter nonsense. Nobody would ever do that. That's exactly Paul's point. Jesus did do that. And if Jesus could do that, then there is no form of humble, loving submission to fellow believers that is beneath you and me. And that's the reality of it. Every day of Jesus' life on this earth was a sacrifice in a certain sense. Every breath that he had to breathe to sustain his life, every step that he had to take to get from one place to another, and it all culminated in his sacrificial death on the cross where he paid the penalty, not for any sins of his own, but for our sins so that we can be forgiven by turning to him in faith. Jesus denied his own self-interest for the sake of a people who are often convinced that it is beneath them to deny their own self-interest. And then in verses 9 through 11, Paul ends the paragraph by worshipfully explaining that in light of his humility, Jesus has now been exalted over all things by God the Father, so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord all to the glory of God for his amazing plan of salvation. No greater humility has ever been demonstrated by that by our Lord and Master, and he is to be our example for the ways that we relate to one another as believers, particularly as believers together in the membership of a local church. Church, as you look at this text And as you think about who Jesus is and what he has done for us, you look at me and tell me that anything, anything is too big or too important for you to lay down for the sake of other believers. There's nothing. So this morning, do you want to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? As a a citizen of the kingdom, do you want to live in line with the gospel? Then seek to cultivate and protect the unity of our church. We don't all have to be the same, but we must all have the same goal. We don't have to agree on everything, but we must agree that unity is ultimately more important than getting our own way. So where God's word gives us clear direction, we want to pursue that wholeheartedly. Right? But when it comes to our personal preferences, we should be eager to serve one another, which ironically is something that God's word does give us clear direction on. The reality is that it's not complicated. It's just really, really hard to do. It requires intentionality. And so as we close... Let me give each of you a pastoral challenge. And that challenge is that every time you come here, whether it's Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night or VBS, men's Bible study, ladies of Lobe, whatever the case may be, every time you come to a church function, wherever you come in from, before you open that door, take a moment to remind yourself it's not about me. It's not about me. I'm here to serve 
not to be served. And so if you get to Sunday school and the coffee hasn't made, been made yet, don't gripe and complain about it. Make the coffee. If you come into worship and someone is sitting in your pew, don't make an issue of it. Just sit somewhere else. I mean, it may be hard to find a spot, but there's probably a space for you somewhere. Right? And if you don't like one of the songs that we sing, recognize that it's probably very meaningful to another member of our church. Appreciate the truth that is in it and sing it anyway. Remind yourself, it's not about me. A church full of members with this mindset is going to be well-positioned for unity, which means that it will be well-positioned for bringing glory to God by making disciples of Jesus. Let's pray that it's so.